I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, the good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean Detloff. I'm a Catholic PhD student at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto, and I also write as a journalist. And I'm Matt Bernico. I teach media studies at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois. This week, we're talking with Greg Daly, a journalist at The Irish Catholic, a newspaper based in Ireland, about the Easter Rising. So Greg edited a book in 2016 called 1916, The Church and the Rising, based on a special issue of the newspaper. And you can get that book on Amazon and also on the Irish Catholics website. So we'll tweet out some links to those. In the book, uh, Greg and other writers call attention to the Catholic faith of the rebels. And in one article, Greg says, The atmosphere of the rising was drenched in Catholicism. The rosary, the soundtrack to rebel activity, wherever it took place. So there's some exciting rhetoric to get you get you pumped. Uh, in addition to just this episode, uh, something kind of cool happened, an alignment of planets or something, where uh, Rev Left Radio just did an episode on the Easter Rising, and so did we. So um, if you're interested in more of the explicitly socialist themes of the Rising, um, if you're interested in James Connolly, for example, um, and you should be, you should definitely be interested in James Connolly, uh, go over to uh, Revolutionary Left Radio's uh, podcast and check out their episode on the Easter Rising. Um, it gives in to some different parts of the uh, the uprising that we don't quite touch on here. So check it out. Cool. Let's turn it over to Greg. Great. So this week we're talking with Greg Daly. Uh, the chief reporter at the Irish Catholic, and we'll get into a lot of really interesting things about the Easter Rising in 1916 in Ireland. Uh, but before we do, Greg, uh, maybe you could just sort of introduce yourself and uh, say maybe a little bit about what you've been up to lately at the paper. Hi. Uh, so yeah, I'm chief reporter with the Irish Catholic. It's the the longest established and the best-selling kind of religious newspaper in, in Ireland. Uh, it's been going since the late 19th century. Um, I've been with the paper solidly for about three years. I was a columnist occasionally for it before that. Um, so lately we've been focused on various kind of new things, as you would expect. We had a, a special issue about Padre Pio about two weeks ago. And we're rolling into um, an issue now which will include a piece about um, the so-called conscription crisis, which happened 100 years ago and is the bridge between the 1916 Rising, which we'll be talking about, and the War of Independence, which 
led to independence for most of the country. So that's what we've been up to. Yeah, that's great. Uh, that sounds pretty busy. Anyway, busy few years to be uh, kind of covering a lot of um, centenary anniversaries of, of a lot of different historical events, I would imagine. Yeah, no, very much so. Um, the Rising became, it, it was kind of almost a, the centenary of the country, you know, as, a, as, a, as an independent country in some sense. And we realized this was going to be obviously a big thing. So during my first year on the paper, we kind of talked about doing a special issue dedicated to the centenary. We published it in December, uh, December 2015, so ahead of time, before everybody was, you know, almost bored with it. <laughs> um, and we got that out then. It did incredibly well. And subsequently, we kind of we built on that. We enlarged it and we turned it into a book, which you brought out a few months later. So it's, uh, yeah, we've been busy working on this, certainly. Yeah. Uh, could you uh, just start off by giving kind of a brief introduction to the Easter Rising? Uh, what was it and who were some of those major figures? And maybe as you were editing the book, um, you know, what did you sort of feel was really important to communicate about that? OK, well, obviously, the, the relationship between Ireland and Britain and more specifically England has been, you know, complicated and often unpleasant for much of history. Um in the 19th century, the start of the 19th century, the two countries were kind of welded into one thing. The, the so-called Act of Union, the Acts of Union in 1800-1801 uh, merged the two into one country, the United Kingdom, Great Britain and Ireland. And it was very unpopular in Ireland very quickly. Um, but it took a long time for resistance to this to kind of coalesce. And through, you know, in the first half of the 19th century, you had kind of very kind of democratic mainstream resistance to it. The famine knocked that um, off off course when in the space of five years, the country was kind of lost between a quarter and a third of its population. And then pretty much almost nothing happens for about 20 years. There's a rebellion in the late 1860s that fails. And then after that, the country gets solidly onto a, a democratic course to try and achieve not independence, but autonomy within the UK. And this movement called Home Rule um, constantly had a majority of support in Ireland. Although over time, there was serious opposition to it from the Protestant majority in the northeast of the country, uh, which suspected that if the country had autonomy, it would become basically a Catholic state and be very unpleasant for them. Eventually, at a point where the British government had agreed to introduce devolution or home rule for Ireland, um, the response in the Northeast is to, you know, hundreds of thousands of people sign um, a covenant where they will basically threaten to make war if this comes about. And they form their own private army um, to do this. And they import arms, lots of them, like 20, 25,000 guns um, to do this, to fight to remain part of the UK. The response to that is that um, you have similar groups form in the rest of the country to kind of pressurize the British into doing this. And the British effectively decide, just as World War I is beginning, OK, we're going to bring this in, but not just yet. And we're going to make a special exception for Northeast Ireland. Um, this leads to quite a lot of disenchantment in Ireland, um, at least among small groups of the population. And we now know also among the, the much of the hierarchy in the church, but certainly small groups of the population became very disenchanted by this. Um, in particular, I would point to a guy called Patrick Pierce, who had been a committed home ruler for most of his life and who switches in the aftermath of this to becoming a hardline Republican 
and joins the group of people who are dedicated to taking advantage of Britain's difficulty. Um, the old cliche was England's difficulty is Ireland's opportunity. And they decided to try and use the what was left of this kind of paramilitary force in, in Ireland to stage a rebellion against Britain. Um, this rebellion has been described as almost like, you know, as a secret cult within a secret group, within a secret organization. It was very, very secretive the way it was all planned. Um, took place over Easter week in 1916. Um, didn't go well. Uh, I mean, they held out for a week, but um, as you would predict, uh, they lost and lost badly. Um, and the reaction at the time was very mixed. Uh, an awful lot of people at the start of it were appalled that this rebellion was happening. Um, though after a few days, they were at least glad that they'd been able to kind of show their strength and it didn't show up the country. It wasn't, it wasn't a weak rebellion, you know. <laughs> people were kind of glad that they were able to withstand Britain for so long. But eventually, um, the rebels surrendered, they were rounded up. The leaders were all executed and they were executed kind of... Um, in kind of a staggered way that, that kind of caused a huge amount of national sympathy to build up to this. And a lot of these have been very popular national figures. Um, and the result of all this is that within a few weeks, when the month's mind masses are held to commemorate the dead, huge crowds gather at the month's mind masses. And it's very clear that there was a huge popular groundswell of opposition to the way Britain had put down the rebellion. And this building on the disenchantment that was already there um, combines in such a way that within a year or so, um, there is a big swing towards um, Irish people wanting full independence rather than autonomy. Um, in the 1918 elections, um, Sinn Féin, which is the party of the day, um, wins by a landslide and promptly sets up its own parliament in Dublin. Um, and on the same day, the War of Independence breaks out with um, an, an attack in rural Ireland on, a, on, on some police, uh, British policemen there. Um, and the end result of this is that within a couple of years, um, a truce is called. Um, and the upshot of that is the, a treaty, but the negotiation is a treaty with the British and what becomes known as the Irish Free State. So... It's not fully, fully, fully independent, but it has what one of the leaders at the time called the freedom to achieve freedom. And within 30 years of that, we're a full republic. Although that northeast part of the country, which initially threatened war and pretty much starts the entire military process on this, that's still part of the UK to this day as known as Northern Ireland. So that's kind of the, the potted history of 1916. Yeah, that's helpful to kind of frame the context of uh, the issue we'll be talking about today. Well, um, on this podcast, we like to talk a lot about the connections uh, between socialism and Christianity and people who kind of exemplify that connection. Um, so in your book, uh, 1916, The Church and the Rising, um, there's a, an introduction by Archbishop Dermid Martin, who reminds us that the rebels uh, in the 1916 uprising um, were all people of faith. And that is kind of what sparked our interest in some of this. Um, and in even even more that like uh, a number of the priests just they, they played a role in the rising um, personally. So could you tell us um, what the faith of the revolutionaries in 1916 looked like? Yeah, they were putting it very simply, they were ordinary Catholics. The vast majority of them were ordinary Catholics. Um, not everybody, of course. Um, I mean, you'll find books nowadays about prominent Protestant rebels and that, that they definitely shouldn't be ignored. But 
overwhelmingly um, the people there were ordinary Catholics. And that comes across, um, I mean, we've always known this about the leaders. Back in the, the 50s and 60s, um, an awful lot of the leaders tended to be presented as almost kind of like plaster saints. And some of them in particular have been very devout. But what got very interesting when I was working on the on the, the special issue of the paper and then the book was that I went into the, the state's military archives from this period. And I would read the accounts of the rising as narrated or written down by people who'd taken part in it 20, 30 years earlier. And constantly through this, what you find are these are just ordinary Catholics in a, dev- in a pretty devout time. Um, they, they make sure to go to confession before the rising. They, they say the, ra- the, the, the rosary throughout the rebellion. Um, they look for priests to come and tend to them, whether to, whether to kind of administer the last rites or to, to say mass um, and to hear their confessions um, throughout the rising. There's even one, con- one confirmation that takes place um, during it. So people are overwhelmingly Catholic through this. Um, I mean, the nature of the Catholicism varied, of course. And you also get, um, you'll get a few people who are kind of, you know, not just lapsed, but kind of almost anti-Catholic to some degree. Um, or more anti-clerical might be more accurate. Certainly a couple of the leaders were like that. But even then, when it comes to their time in prison and their the hours before their execution. It's a real kind of, it's almost like that cliche about there being no atheists in foxholes. Mm. Even then, they talk to the priests. Um, even then, they receive the sacraments. And even then, they they go to their execution, um, having made their peace with the church. Um, yeah, that was probably one of the things I found the most interesting reading this book. Uh, you have all these really inspiring and interesting stories about how Catholicism was present during that really tumultuous week. Um, could you talk to us a little bit about how, for example, like the sacraments were present as all of this uh, armed struggle was unfolding? Um, you know, what were there any kind of really harrowing stories or examples that kind of stuck with you? Yeah, there, there's quite a few. I mean, you have, um, I suppose the most conspicuous thing is the role of the Capuchin priests during the Rising. Um, you know, clergy all across Dublin were involved in the Rising, one way or another. Um, and you hear of, like, passionist priests, for instance, getting a message um, from a garrison which was in a distillery. Uh, and the passionists are about two miles away, and they have to kind of move through the city in the darkness. Um, you know, there's obviously gunfire going on around them. And to come in and to hear the confessions of the men in the middle of the night, um, and they're, they're kind of receiving letters asking, will you come and hear, say mass for us the next day? And they, they write back saying, that's not going to be practical. But um, look, you can get a dispensation for it um, and make sure you say the rosary at that time. Um, you have uh, the Capuchins, as I mentioned, are everywhere. There's a group of about four of them who were buzzing around the city um, from outpost to outpost. Um, they come out of their their friary on Church Street in Dublin, which is very close to one major rebel garrison, but they wind up in other ones as well. And there they're requested to kind of to hear the confessions of the men, to, to they say mass with them. Um, you hear general absolutions happening on a few occasions. There's one, um, you know, there's one just before the rising when the troops are all assembled. And it's very much like a First World War army chaplain situation 
where the captain, the, the priest in question comes out and absolves the men as a group before they go out to battle. Um, you also have, um, there's one story about a guy, I think it's um, Ziggy Callender, who's one of the, the rebels at this point, who's a messenger. And his account of moving around the city is kind of remarkable when you map it out, just how much ground he covered and how he uses churches as landmarks. When he tells his story, it's the churches that he constantly refers to when he's moving about. You know, James Joyce's old cliche was about how the real challenge will be to pass Dublin, to cross through Dublin without passing a pub. Well, whether or not that's true, um, Icky Callender shows that you can't do it without passing a church. <laughs> and he is joined as he's running along at one point over the Liffey by a priest from a church which had been the theatre and is a theatre again now, but at the time it was a church. And they run over, they cross the barricades. And then having got into kind of a rebel occupied zone of the city, the priest promptly does general absolution for the soldiers there in the street. Um, we hear about it happening on the roof of the general post office, which was the rebel headquarters. Um, so, you know, it's, it, it's everywhere. And as I mentioned, um, out at it's Boland Mills, I think it is. Um, so it's a, you know, it's a flower factory, basically, at one stage, which was controlling one of the major routes into the city, especially controlling the train line in from the main port. So if Britain wanted to get reinforcements in, you bring them through that port and then by train into the city. And at Boland's Mills, which is controlling that train line, um, there was one individual who he wanted, he was an Anglican and he wanted a priest to hear his confession. And he didn't trust the Church of Ireland clergy and, and converts and becomes <laughs> Catholic on the spot. And the Catholic priest is there, they, they confirm and he's received into full communion in his church. And um, yeah, he's, conf he's confirmed there and then. So you have all, all kinds of kind of dramatic episodes like that through the whole thing. Well, on that same part uh, or that same point um, about the, the role of the clergy in some of like the struggle, um, how did the church hierarchy at large react to the rising? Like, were, were, was everyone as supportive as those clergy members or was there tension um, no, the upper ranks. not at all. I mean, if you read almost anything on this, you will be told that the hierarchy was opposed to it. Um, mm. The reality is much more mixed than that. Um, in the days after the rising, we know that about seven of them condemned it. But first of all, when you look at what they say, they nearly always condemn it. But they're usually condemning it because it had been doomed to failure. And they're also condemning it because they kind of feel that they were the rebels were provoked into it. You know, they so even then it's not an unqualified condemnation. But you've got to bear in mind that there were nearly 30 bishops in the country at the time. So what were the other bishops thinking? And it looks like most of them were holding their counsel. Um, we know that the bulk of them seem to have, by this stage, grown disenchanted with the home rule cause. They felt that home rule parliamentarians were just in it for themselves. And they felt that um, the British were not to be trusted and that the best that was going to come out of Home Rule was going to be devolved government for two separate jurisdictions in Ireland, one of which would have a massively Protestant majority, which is, of course, Northern Ireland to this day. Um, so they were they seem to have kept their own council. And with the exception of Edward Dwyer, who is the, the Bishop of Limerick, and Dwyer is pretty outspoken in favour of the rebels. Now, he, he dies within a year of it. But nonetheless, he's, he's definitely outspoken on this issue. Um, we know from other accounts written afterwards, and of course, 
possibly time is colouring this to some degree, but that there were differences among the hierarchy, both about the rising and the subsequent war of independence. And very broadly speaking, it seems to have been that older bishops who were longtime home rulers were more opposed to the rising than the younger bishops. Uh, in other words, there's a generational shift. And you see it with the clergy as well. You see it with seminarians. Apparently, all the seminarians in Maynooth, the National Seminary, were hugely in favour of the rising. So it was, you know, basically you're having a generational shift anyway. And this is reflected in a church every bit as much as it's reflected in broader society. One thing that I thought was interesting was the role of women that you uh, talk about in a section in the book. Um, what was the role of women during the Rising and why was that? Uh, why was their inclusion important as a part of the Rising? Yeah, well, I mean, probably the first thing I should say here is the one regret I've got with the book is that I don't say enough on this. Um, I say as much as I could, given what I could find out at the time. Um, I had difficulty when putting together the, the original paper and the book in talking to rel- uh, women religious orders. And I've since, so therefore there's nothing about the role of nuns or sisters in the book. Um, and I've since found out about things like um, sisters who were in a convent overlooking one of the main battlegrounds arising and who wrote down everything that happened at the time and stuff like that. So we, I've, you know, I've learned quite a bit about them since. But in the rising itself, yeah, women played a key role. Um, uh, women in the rising tended to be in two groups. Uh, some of them were in uh, the Irish Citizens Army, which we'll get to separately, I guess. And many were in what was called Cumann Naman which was basically the women's auxiliary wing of the nationalist and um, the Irish volunteer force. That's effectively what they, what they were. They, um, they had varying roles in the rising women did. Um, the most important one, the one that everybody in Ireland can name is Countess Constance Markovich, uh, an Irish aristocrat, Protestant aristocrat who'd married a Polish count. And, um, she was one of the leaders of the citizens army, the kind of the socialist unit that was there. Um, she actually converts pretty much immediately after the rising and becomes Catholic. But um, so she's, you know, out there commanding troops in the field, if you like. Um, you get others, there's a lady called Margaret Skinner, a Scottish uh, woman of, of Irish family, who is, uh, she's basically a sharpshooter during it. And she's also the only woman to be seriously injured in the rising. Um, Quite a few of them were messengers who would have been doing the very dangerous work of like running or cycling about the city, passing messages from rebel outpost to rebel outpost. You're dealing with kind of Dublin being occupied and about eight or nine points being seriously controlled by the rebels. And you've got women moving between them, which, of course, would have been a very, very dangerous job. The bulk of them um, were working as nurses or in the kitchens. Um, Now, it's very easy to disregard this. And it's incredibly wrong to do so. Um, Back until quite recently, this role tended to be kind of ignored altogether. Basically, we valorized the combat roles, which meant you ignored the people who weren't fighting. Um, Nowadays, what's happening, and I think it's a mistake as well, is that people talk about them as though they fought in the rising. They usually didn't. Hmm. But um, we all know the cliche about how an army marches on its stomach. I don't think the rising would have lasted a week. I think it might have only lasted one or two days if it hadn't been for the role of women in it. Um, you hear, for instance, at uh, the four courts, one of the, the rebel outposts, that when the women units arrived, um, at first the men didn't know what to do with them. And then the women pointed out the men had no supplies. They had tea. 
that was all they had was tea. They weren't going to hold out for, you know, more than a day or two with simply on cups of tea. That wasn't going to work. So they kind of took over the kind of the food supply system and, and established a logistical arrangement, you know, where they were kind of bringing in food, whether by kind of either basically looting shops nearby or whatever it would have been, but bringing in food so they could feed the troops. And you hear about this at other outposts where, you know, um, they would requisition, some farmer would be going by. Dublin was kind of, although it was a city, it kind of touched onto farmland at lots of points. And a farmer going by with three cows or two or three cows and they requisitioned the calves immediately. One of the soldiers who was there was an 18-year-old butcher. So they have him do the chopping up and then they're able to feed people with them. You know, they're requisitioning kind of uh, wagon loads of cabbages or whatever it might be. And it's quite remarkable when you go through the accounts, the extent to which basically um, women made this happen by feeding the men who were in the front lines. Um, and they, they played an absolutely indispensable part in the whole thing. Yeah, that is, uh, that is remarkable, actually. Um, it's uh, a shame that they're left out of the story sometimes. Yeah, I mean, again, we are recovering them nowadays, which is good, but I think we're probably recovering them in a slightly false way. We're making out, so in the past where they glamorized combat roles and they ignored women because they didn't, they rarely had combat roles. Nowadays, we're still glamorizing combat roles and we're talking about the women as if they had combat roles. I see, yeah. And that's not correct either. The reality is they were doing something else that was far more constructive, really, in many ways, (laughs) Um, but less, you know, less exciting at some level. And therefore, it gets played down, whereas it's utterly vital to the whole thing. Yeah, absolutely. Huh. Well, uh, a few minutes ago, you did mention uh, like a socialist fighting unit. And um, while the Rising wasn't explicitly socialist, um, there were many socialists involved and uh, trade unionists um, and other workers. Uh, could you talk a little bit about the connection between socialism and the Easter Rising? Yeah. So in the... The decades prior to the rising, the two decades or so prior, prior to it, an awful lot of shifts in Ireland, and there have been like major social shifts in general. Um, but one of the things that happens is that in Dublin itself, um, urban workers start to kind of to unionise. Um, there's two key figures in this, uh, both from Britain, both Irish of Irish family, a guy from Liverpool called Jim Larkin, and a guy from Glasgow in Scotland called James Connolly. Um, and... In 1913, there's kind of a Dublin-wide strike, which involved lots of workers being barred from their place of work because they have unionised. And it runs for months, the so-called 1913 lockout. Um, During this period, and it's against the backdrop of that, um, the unionist army having formed in what's now Northern Ireland. um, During that period, a similar um, paramilitary group is established in Dublin, the so-called the Irish Citizens Army, and set up to... um, to protect workers, to protect them from um, basically being from police brutality, is essentially what it came down to. So you had this kind of small army in Dublin uh, led by James Connolly. Um, as World War One progressed, the group is still present in Dublin. A lot of those people who would have been in it originally have gone off to fight in World War One because you get an actual wage and were able to send it home to your, to your, to your family. But the Citizens Army still existed and Connolly, who's a, kind of an interesting figure in many ways, but, but Connolly um, is one of the people who pushes strongly for a rebellion against Britain. Um, he makes it known to the, the IRB, the Irish Republican Brotherhood, that if they're not going to rebel, he is. So um, they basically do a deal and they agree that they will, they will fight together. So in the Rising, um, 
you have, and the numbers you took part are not clear, but let's say there's roughly 1,500 men fighting in it, um, plus women. Um, 200 of those would have been, roughly 200 would have been members of the Citizens' Army. Um, so you've got this group set up to protect ordinary workers. Um, now, Connolly, it's worth pointing out, Connolly had, I mean, he'd been, he'd travelled quite widely. He lived in America for a while and he fell out with the, um, with the US, uh, the Socialist Labour Party originally, because they were unhappy with the fact that he felt that Catholicism and socialism could be compatible. Uh, he believed they could be. And it may just have been that he was being pragmatic, that he knew Ireland was an overwhelmingly Catholic country and socialism wasn't going to get anywhere unless it could make some kind of compromise or compatibility with Catholicism. Um, so he'd fallen out with them, but he believed you could definitely blend the two to some degree. And uh, and it is significant that the these kind of these troops who could be seen as simply a socialist actually tended to be Catholic as well. Um, we know, for instance, I mean, I mentioned Countess Markovic earlier. Um, Markovic converted uh, over the course of the rising, um, and it seems that the the key moment that convinced her was watching the Citizens Army troops all getting down on their knees and praying their rosaries. Um, and in particular, um, uh, Commandant Joseph Mallon, um, who was the second in command of the Citizens Army. Um, Mallon had been a former soldier. He'd been, the British, he'd been in the British Army um, and was clearly a very devout Catholic. He's, I mean, he's one of the ones about whom we, we have no doubt and also must have been a committed socialist to be second in command of the Citizens Army. Um, and he's especially timely figure this week. Um, um, when he was in his prison cell awaiting execution, um, his wife came to see him, um, carrying along her two, their two and a half year old son. His, um, it was his second son, um, but in her toddler, uh, in Joseph. And afterwards, Malin wrote to his wife, like his last words were to his wife. And Aside from saying how he didn't hate the British, he forgave them, and he was he was very clear on this. He felt that they'd been forced into this situation. Um, he also addressed his children specifically, and he says, "Joseph, my little man, be in, be a priest if you can." And he also urged his little daughter Una that she should become a nun, and both of them did. Now, they, apparently, they didn't know about the letter when they went and joined. But Joseph's older brother Sean joined the Jesuits. Joseph himself joined the Jesuits. And Una wound up becoming a Loretto nun. And Joseph himself only died last week. He died on Easter Sunday. He was 104 years old, um, possibly Ireland's oldest priest, um, stationed in Hong Kong since 1948. Um, but um, So we had that very, very strong link with the leaders of the Rising um, until this week. That's so crazy. I mean, it's crazy that this history is so recent in some ways. Uh, and... Also not as maybe publicized. I mean, I hadn't heard about the Easter Rising until uh, pretty recently, I guess, you know, within the last couple of years, kind of researching Christianity and, and leftism. Um, and doing some research on the Rising uh, this past week, we found also that it was an inspiration for uh, the Bolsheviks, or at least some of them, uh, including Lenin, who obviously would 
you know, be part of the Russian Revolution a year later in 1917. Um, so we found doing that research that in the Soviet Union, James Connolly was sometimes referred to as the Irish Lenin, uh, which was kind of an interesting connection. And at the same time, the Soviets were sort of nervous about the Catholic dimension of the rising. So they would refer to it sometimes as the Irish Uprising uh, or the, the Dublin Uprising to avoid some of these religious tones, calling it the Easter Rising. Um, but what do you think, is there, is there something that kind of gets lost in attempts to overlook or downplay the Catholic faith at the heart of the rising? I mean, to have a, a prominent leader, like you were just referring to, you know, write to his children to become, uh, you know, to enter religious life is a, a pretty uh, profound thing, it seems to me, and a pretty uh, different sort of thing than other kind of revolutionary movements as people often talk about them. Yeah, I think this is this is definitely correct. It's worth saying, by the way, um, I don't know if you'd, you'd heard this one, but as far as I know, it's actually the Soviet Union that's the first country in the world to recognize independent Ireland, um, which is a, it's a bit odd during the War of Independence. I think it's because they borrowed money off them, basically. But nonetheless, you know, there is a formal acknowledgement that this Irish Republic that's declared in January 1919, that that is uh, off the back of the 1916 Rising that that's an independent country. Um, obviously, Britain isn't having it, and the US, which is in the middle of the Versailles negotiations, isn't having it either. But the Soviet Union does. Um, the, the rebels at that point weren't entirely comfortable with this. They, that's not really the approval that they'd wanted, given um, the, way, the way people were looking at the Soviet Union. But um, yeah, no, I think it's absolutely true to say that um, the rising is fundamentally misunderstood if we, we overlook or downplay the Catholicism of the rebels. Um, there's a very common narrative nowadays that the rising was led, or the rising was a rising of radicals, and then it was hijacked by the church. That's the, if you like, the prevailing orthodoxy. And you'll, you'll, you'll read this time and time again. Um, it's not borne out once you start looking at the documents on this one. Um, and you talk to people at the time, and it couldn't have been. The, the country was overwhelmingly Catholic. Take a look at the, you know, the census figures and things like that at the time. It was a profoundly Catholic country. Um, it was a Catholicism formed by uh, Victorian England, of course, so it was, a, it was a curious variant of Catholicism, but it was profoundly Catholic for all that. And as I said, there were radicals in it. The, the socialists were an element, without doubt, an important element, but even then they were decidedly Irish Catholic socialists, you know, they weren't, you know, they were, they were, they were quite a particular variant of it. Um, I, and I don't have the figures offhand on this one, but after doing the book, one of the things I did was I, I went through the military bureau archives again to do a particular search for how often terms came up, because I was very curious about the fact that, um, because Ireland nowadays is trying to reinvent itself as a very secular nation and mostly succeeding. Um, but one of the things that's necessary for this is to kind of pretend that the 1916 Rising was a secular affair. And the, the 1916 proclamation, the proclamation of the Republic, um, is held up as this kind of, you know, secular charter, really, which it most certainly wasn't. Um, but nonetheless, it gets held up in that way. And I thought, well... How often do people talk about it at the time? And I did a search through all these archives for how often the word proclamation comes up. And it turns out it comes up maybe, I mean, don't, you know, obviously don't quote me on an error, but you know what I mean? Um, something like 200 times. But when you look at the references, most of those aren't referring to the proclamation. 
they're referring to local officers. You know, a, a colonel issued a proclamation saying. So it's well under 100 times that it's referred to in, in thousands of documents. Whereas if you do a search for words like rosary or communion or confession, they crop up time and time and time and time again. Uh, I was able to do a map of Dublin showing how often these words popped up in different places. And it's quite clear that these people were profoundly religious. Their, their life was defined by their religion in many respects. Um, that's not all to say that they were like, you know, excess, extremely holy or anything like that. It's just that's the world they lived in. Um, and we falsify that world if we if we present it as being something else. And I mean, it's not an accident that, you know, the proclamation begins by saying, you know, Irish men and Irish women in the name of God and the dead generations from which she receives her old tradition of nationhood. Um, you know, the whole thing, the independence movement is decreed in the name of God. It's not a French Republic. It's not like um, what Ireland, what, what the rebels of 1798 in, in Ireland tried to do. It's it's a deliberately it's almost, it's a Catholic Republic is what they have in mind. And, um, you know, when they start off by listing, so, you know, further into the document, they list the rights that citizens are to be guaranteed in this republic. And the very first right that's guaranteed is religious liberty. Um, that comes ahead of civil liberty, um, comes ahead of everything else. And that's coming off the back of the fact that. For hundreds of years, Catholics didn't have religious liberty in Ireland. And this was very much in the minds of the people who were fighting. We have like we have a few diaries and things like that from people at the time who, who you know, sitting up on rooftops with their rifles while thinking about Cromwell or the penal laws and um, times when priests had to hide, when masses were said at rocks in fields and um, stuff like that. When, when Catholics, Catholics weren't allowed to sit in Britain's parliament until like 1829. Um, so all of that kind of fed into it, and that was the backdrop against which the, the, the rising took place. People would talk about, and again, the military archives are the most extraordinary documents. People talk about having had their nationalism and the rebelliousness formed by their Catholic educations. You know, um, people saying it was the Christian brothers who made a rebel of me. It was the presentation sisters who made a rebel of me. You know, it was that kind of thing. It's everybody was formative. I wouldn't go so far as to say, as one um, distinguished Irish historian said at one stage, that it was a Catholic jihad. It certainly wasn't that, but it definitely formed it. And we, we misrepresent the entire rising if we pretend otherwise. Yeah, I think that's such an interesting distinction. Um, and one, uh, I mean, it seems important to me that, you, you know, that distinction is made again and reinforced. Um what I, I something you said at the very beginning of our conversation that I really uh, thought was important and it seems even more important now is that these uh, the folks involved in the rising were just ordinary Catholics. I like I like that uh, that distinction of them being ordinary in the sense that like they aren't um, they aren't like deviating from Catholicism. They aren't like um, they aren't especially Catholic or something like that. They're just like regular folks that are uh, in like formed in their sort of religious tradition and like that's kind of where some of this is coming from um so so just that they um they're ordinarily catholic uh that they're that they're they're nothing special i guess is a worthwhile point to make yeah i mean i i mean you know i mean obviously as you'd expect you know you pick any hundred catholics out of the pews and people are going to vary in terms of you know some of them will just go along on sunday because that's what you do um 
some of them will be members of, you know, sodalities and fraternities and religious order. You know, they, they will re- you'll get a wide range. But it's simply this is just what you do. It's, it's and I mean, one thing I'm trying to find out is that one of the guys uh, I'm, I'm very curious about this one, um, Sean Houston. Um, now, Sean's brother was a Dominican. And we know that when Sean was and I think his sister was a Dominican nun. And we know that when Sean was in his prison cell, he was visited. Sean was very young. He was only early 20s. Um, he was visited by his brother and his brother's student master, um, who subsequently became master general of the Dominicans uh, around the world, and the cardinal, who who was one of the most conservative cardinals in Vatican II. <laughs> so it's kind of weird how these things join up, that you had, you know, one of the council fathers was um, played this kind of minor kind of footnote role in the 1916 Rising. But certainly, so um, so Sean Houston's brother came along with his his student master, and the brother asked if Sean could be buried in the Dominican habit, um, which leaves me wondering if he was a lay Dominican. It would have been a very weird request to make otherwise. Um, now, I mean, this wasn't even an option. I mean, what the novice, what the student master said was, if we'd known in advance, um, we could have arranged it, which again suggests that it could have happened. But um, no, I mean, it didn't happen. He was he was taken out, he was shot, and then he was dumped in a pit and had lime, uh, kind of lime poured on him, quick lime poured on him to dissolve the body. Um, all the leaders were, were dealt with that way in order to prevent their grave becoming a kind of a, a relic of Irish nationalism, you know, a holy spot that people would gather around. Um, but no, so you do, you, you get that. But I mean, it's it's... I don't know, in my, probably my favourite detail in terms of like the, the ordinariness of it is the night, it's not actually the night before the rising, the night before the night before the rising, everybody goes to confession. Um, the reason being the rising was meant to happen on Easter Sunday and due to confusion and countermanding orders and new orders, it happened on Easter Monday instead. Um, but so on Holy Saturday, um, everybody goes to confession. And in numbers that were freakishly large, it constantly appears in the accounts that you know, people are going in bigger numbers than you would expect, even though it's Easter. It's just huge crowds are showing up. But my favorite one is that there's one guy who is, you know, they're trying to gather up weapons for the following day. They're pretty sure something's going to happen. And one guy goes into a shop looking to buy a bayonet. And the guy in the shop says, we don't have any bayonets. I, I do have a, a samurai sword. <laughs> and he goes, oh, that'll do. And <laughs> So he buys he buys this Japanese sword. I presume it's not a full katana, but he buys some kind of Japanese sword and tucks it away under his coat and then heads off down to Whitefriar Street where the Carmelites are and where the bones of St. Valentine are. <laughs> and he goes in there and he goes to confession and to mass um, with the samurai sword tucked in his coat. Um, you get some very, very strange stuff happening. Yeah, definitely. Um <laughs> Well, uh, a few moments ago, too, you said that uh, the, the Jesuits were sort of key in, in making people rebels and forming their nationalism. Um, so nationalism always has some kind of role in uprisings like this. Um, uh, but but what, what that role actually is is a little bit uh, contentious from uh, instance to instance. Um, so uh, what did like what did nationalism mean for the Irish rebels in the Easter Rising, and uh, how was it received among uh, the people involved? Did did nationalism mean for rebels um, 
uh, I guess like what did what did nationalism mean for rebels and like what did it mean for the other other people involved like maybe the, the British or, or whoever in some ways this is a huge question um, and at times I think nationalism is almost like Brian Aldous's definition of science fiction which is it's what you point at and say that's science fiction hmm. um, you know it, people did understand it differently um, I think it's fair to say that different people had different nationalist outlooks to begin with and so not so much the Jesuits, by the way, but I mean, the Christian brothers would have been the key ones who had formed uh, nationalist kind of outlooks in Ireland. The Jesuits were teaching in a smaller number of kind of pretty wealthy schools, really, at that point. But, um, but yeah, people have been formed by it. It was largely about freedom from foreign rule. And as I say, Ireland had been under, to some degree or other, of English rule since 1171 really um 1168 is when you first have these kind of kind of half norman half english half norman half welsh adventurers being invited into the country the english king gets worried about it um he makes sure that they all swear loyalty to him and then it becomes an expansion of of english power in ireland and you have kind of deliberate exercise in colonialism you have plantations where you have people removed from land and english people settle there um, and this carried on for many centuries, one way or another. And by the 17th century, you know, it's solidly under British rule, really. There's still rebellions, still people trying for Ireland to be its own place. Um, but it's, it's continually under British rule and often we're kind of a, a pro-British aristocratic ruling class as well that is kind of brought in. Um, Britain, of course, never, ever saw itself as being nationalistic. That's part of the, the British outlook, that they're not nationalist and that nationalism is a thing that happens to small people, uh, whether they're Irish or Welsh or Scottish or um, Kenyan or Indian or whatever it might be. You know, nationalism is for other people. Britain doesn't experience nationalism, whereas to anybody watching from outside, um, British nationalism is a very clear phenomenon. Mm. And part of it is defined by believing it's not nationalist. Um, but yeah, I mean, there are different varieties of it. I think it's it's probably very interesting that um, one of the, um, I think it's worth looking at two junior officers in 1916 in this regard. Um, one of them is Michael Collins. Uh, Michael Collins, who served in the GPO, the rebel headquarters in 1916, who winds up becoming head of intelligence in the War of Independence, He's the first finance minister, um, and kind of basically, the, in many, for a lot of people, see him as the, fa- the, the father of kind of independent Ireland. Um, he's not executed as a junior officer um, in 1916 and then rises to prominence, um, leads the treaty negotiations with the British, and then is killed. He's basically assassinated during an ambush in the subsequent civil war that took place in Ireland. Um, so he dies in his early 30s. Collins um, had been. Uh, influenced of all people, very strange, by G.K. Chesterton, the English writer. Um, one of the, the rebel leaders in 1916, uh, Joseph Mary Plunkett. Um, Plunkett seemingly um, gave or loaned Collins his copy of The Man Who Was Thursday, which gives Collins the idea of fighting a war by, by hiding in the open. Um, but perhaps more importantly, Collins's favourite book is Chesterton's Napoleon of Notting Hill, and it's said, I haven't been able to kind of establish how clearly this is attested to, but it's certainly attested to um, 
in a couple of biographies, that during the treaty talks with the British after the War of Independence, Lloyd George gives every member of his British negotiation team a copy of the man who was, or the copy of the Napoleon of Notting Hill, saying, you're going to need to read and understand this if you're going to understand who you're dealing with. And in the Napoleon of Notting Hill, you get two different visions of nationalism. One being the nationalism of small places that simply wants to be free. And the other is the nationalism of big places, which wants to impose your will on others. And it looks very clearly like the rebels of 1916 wanted the former, that they were looking simply to be free of British rule, simply to have their own government um, and their own opportunity of making their own rules and making their own mistakes. Um, I think it's significant that Patrick Pierce, who I began by, by mentioning, um, Pierce had been a home ruler all his life. And the reason why he wanted Irish autonomy, the reason why he wanted Ireland to be able to rule itself was mainly because he felt the education system in the country, the British education system, was soul-destroying, and he wanted a chance for it to be what he saw as an authentically Irish education system um, that would free people and enable them to develop themselves properly. Um, so he, want, he wanted Irish freedom to the end of Irish education. That's, mm. that's what he had in mind. Um, he only becomes a Republican because he doesn't believe they're going to get autonomy. Um, now, for what it's worth, I think he probably would be very unimpressed with our current education system. But nonetheless, um, he had wanted that. The other person I would point to, as well as Collins, and I think this is this is very interesting, is Sean Lamass. Sean Lamass, again, was another junior officer in 1916. Um, and unlike basically everybody I've mentioned so far, he lives for a long time. Um, it's, it's one of the conspicuous things about our kind of founding rebellion that all of our people get killed very quickly. You know, the 1916 leaders are all executed. People die in the War of Independence and people who don't die in the War of Independence die in the civil war that comes afterwards. So it's not like you where you have, you know, Washington last, but people like, you know, Adams and Jefferson just last forever. You know, um, you know, I mean, Hamilton is kind of the freak by dying young. You know, uh, all of ours die young. Um, Lamas is curious. Lamas is a young uh, soldier in the GPO in 1916. He fights in the War of Independence. He's against the treaty. He's on the anti-treaty side. He feels it's too much of a compromise uh, in the Civil War. And he eventually goes on in the 50s and 60s to become uh, Ireland's Taoiseach, our, our head of our government. Uh, and a lot of people regard Lamas as probably the best Taoiseach we ever had. Really strikingly, Lamas is the person who pushes hardest for Ireland to join the early EEC, what becomes the EU. Um, and he believes in this very strongly. And he actually says, he says this in public speeches at the time that went down very well. He said that we should be prepared for this to become some form of a federalised Europe down the line. And we should be willing to fight to defend it. We should be willing to take part in NATO or whatever it would take in order to protect it. Um, Lamas, in other words, doesn't see any contradiction between Ireland as an independent nation and Ireland as a confederation with other nations working together. The key thing is that you're not having, that would be a voluntary arrangement and it would be an arrangement where Ireland would be sitting as an equal around a table with other countries, sitting there talking to Germany, to France, to Belgium, to Holland, and indeed to Britain as an equal. Um, and that was utterly central that we could take our place among the nations of the world. Hmm. Uh, 
yeah it's good that we're already kind of starting to see how the easter rising starts to inform the rest of irish politics for the 20th century and beyond um maybe we could talk a little bit more about that how does the 1916 rising fit into these larger trends of modern revolt in ireland uh, and maybe, I guess, related to that, how do Catholics um, today and, and during that period of revolt, how did Catholics sort of uh, see um, see the rising and, and maybe today, how do they kind of think about that legacy? Yeah, I mean, those are, I mean, those are really great questions. The, the first bit of it uh, is kind of a curious one. You know, for most of Irish history, uh, modern like Irish history, the rising was seen as something that people couldn't criticize. It was, um, it, it was the birth myth of the state really you know it's it's the point that sets us on the path even though it failed it's its failure was a triumphant failure that set us onto the path to independence and that gets seriously called into question around uh 1966 onwards um the the late 60s see the beginning of the civil rights movement in northern ireland um which is responded to um aggressively um by the the local authorities there um that leads to kind of anti-catholic pogroms and so forth you the british troops get sent in and then the ira which had been pretty ineffective until that point people used to say it stood for i ran away it becomes very aggressive and becomes a full-on and murderous terrorist outfit up there um this poses a real problem for people in the rest of ireland in particular as nationalism becomes a dirty word and 1916 becomes a dirty word because when you get down to it there was no democratic mandate for 1916 people didn't vote for this and it was led by a minority within a minority within a minority you know it was there was no real there was no mandate for it whatsoever so the question for many people was how on earth can you celebrate 1916 without implicitly giving some kind of imprimatur to the actions of the IRA in Northern Ireland and in Britain. And there was never a good answer for this. So one of the things that happened is that we stopped celebrating it and we stopped commemorating it. Um, and for about 30 years, nobody talks about it. I mean, I, I was in school when the 75th anniversary of 1916 took place. It wasn't even talked about. I have no recollection of it being mentioned at all. The state was very, very, very quiet about it. And we only start to talk about it in a remotely positive way again once the peace process begins in Northern Ireland in the 1990s. Um, because as the, the IRA start laying down their weapons, as the unionist terrorists start laying down their weapons too, um, this leads to kind of a useful detente, uh, a kind of constructiveness in conversation, and also a willingness to kind of have a bit of a synthesis in how we look at our past as we go from having glamorized it to having hidden it to, well, let's look at it honestly and talk about it honestly. And over the last 15 to 20 years, there's been a real shift in that. Um, and I think pretty much everybody was impressed with how, um, when we celebrated the centenary in 2016, um, people were willing to look at kind of, it, it look at it warts and all. Um, that just, that didn't mean just looking at the warts. It meant looking at what was good about it too. Um, so it's it's genuinely been been looked at in a positive light. Um, people don't deny the fact that 
you know, innocent people died in it. Um, lots of civilians were killed in it. Um, some were killed in crossfires. I mean, some were not. I mean, I, we're not entirely sure. You have different claims of who was the first person killed in it. But it seems like the first person killed in the Rising was either a small child, like a two-year-old, who was caught in a crossfire um, just outside the Capuchin Priory, actually. Um, or else it was an unarmed policeman who was shot when he wouldn't let rebels into Dublin Castle, uh, which was the centre of British administration. So either it was a murder of an unarmed policeman or it was the accidental killing of a small child. Um, neither of this is a good thing. And that is fully acknowledged now. People do talk about that. At the same time, you know, people are willing to talk about the circumstances that led to this, that it didn't come out of nowhere. And... Yeah, it, like it or not, um, it's it's the birth it's the birth of the state. It's the birth of what becomes independent Ireland, and people will will talk about this. But as we've said, you have this this strange phenomenon of um, the Catholicism of it being played down, um, or played up in very very weird ways. I I was very struck when we had our um, we had our referendum on same sex marriage a couple of years ago, and again, regardless of where people stood on this. It was very strange that the head of the, basically the policeman's trade union, for want of a better phrase, um, he talked about this and he said, you know, voting for this would be a realisation of what the leaders of 1916 were fighting for. And at the time I thought, Anna, look here, where, what, regardless of what you think about the issues here, um, I think it is highly unlikely that a group of bog standard Catholics 100 years ago thought same-sex marriage would be the thing that they were out there fighting and dying for, you know, but it does show the extent to which people are willing to, um, to latch on to 1916. You know, it, it's one of the great cliches, you know, is this what the men of 1916 died for? Is this what, the, and nowadays, is this what the men and women of 1916 fought for? You know, have we lived up to their example? And that still does get discussed to this day. Hmm. Well, um, maybe on a similar note then, um, what, what do you wish that Christians and Catholics, um, either in Ireland or elsewhere in the world, uh, knew about the Rising? And um, what do you wish people who sympathize with the Rising knew about Christianity? Uh, the latter one, certainly, I think, um, well, basically, I think people, I wish people knew that there was a Christian element to it. <laughs> I'm, I, I get very, very uneasy about the kind of the greenwashing of that, you know, where it's painted out as a purely nationalist exercise. Um the, the fact is that it did come out of the Catholic background of the people involved. Um, I think it's important that people understand that the fact that Ireland is divided today is not a result of the rising. I keep hearing that now. I keep hearing it from people who should know better, uh, intelligent and informed historians um, saying this. And yet we know that this isn't the case. We know that in 1914, um, the British had already put in place plans, tentative plans, for the division of Ireland into two separate devolved districts in terms of what we've got now. So Irish partition predated the rising. The rising isn't a reaction to it. So I think that's that's very important. Um, the country isn't split because Ireland fought for its independence. The country is split because an element in the country was willing to go to war rather than have any measure of Irish independence, rather than living in a country where Catholics would be a majority. Um, and we're, st we're still bearing the, the scars of that today. And I, I really, really wish that were understood. Um, I wish, I mean, I, th I think it's good that people are understanding the, the texture of the rising. 
Um, I think that is very useful, that it's not a simplistic thing. It's not a straightforward story. Um, but at the same time, um, I think it would be good if people understood that part of that texture is its religious nature. Um, and to deny that is to falsify it. The, the, the national broadcaster um, in Ireland, RTE, made a, a drama series about it um, in 2016. That was that was terrible. I mean, it, it got worse with each episode, basically. <laughs> but uh, I, I gave up after episode three. It carried on to episode five. But they did feature religion in it in certain ways. But they did things like they um, they made it seem really weird. So if it was the rosary, it was all shot and lit in a really peculiar way. And it made mm-hmm. it seem like a weird cult. Um, or you have this extraordinary conversation where one of the priests is talking to the Archbishop of Dublin in a church somewhere. And the Archbishop of Dublin is giving him instructions to make sure that the riches of the church are protected. That's the priority. And um, this is the complete opposite of what was going on. Um, Leaving aside the fact that the Archbishop at the time was wrapped head to toe, basically mummified in bandages because of a dreadful skin condition he developed and he couldn't leave his living room. But um, he barely managed to get down from his bedroom at the time. But they were, you know, the, they were very much insistent on people being helped during the rising. That was the absolute priority. And yet the show just went for this anachronistic and false cliche, really, of a church that was purely about, you know, about wealth. And yet we know that the nuns were looking after things, the priests were out administering to people. Um, and it wasn't just the Capuchins, although they were absolute heroes of the whole process. Um, it was it was across the board. Um, this was a, you know, and not again, not just the institutional church, it was ordinary people who were ordinary Catholics doing ordinary Catholic stuff during the whole thing. Yeah, um, well, I think that's a really good note for us to kind of end on, just really emphasizing the the ordinary Catholic nature of uh, the Rising. And um, I just want to say uh, the the book is is really well done. I mean the the material is fantastic, and the design of it is also really nice. So yeah, it's a beautiful. book. I don't book. know how uh, it really is. I don't know how accessible the the book is to buy, but I do know that there's a link to buy it at the Irish Catholic and. I would encourage folks, uh, if you can, to get a hold of that. Um, yeah, we, we want to thank you so much, Greg, for spending time with us. Uh, it's been great to kind of think about the Easter Rising, you know, right after Easter. Uh, so we appreciate uh, you, you spending this time and hope that as you cover sort of the next uh, big centenaries, um, that uh, you keep uncovering more and more of these uh, really kind of important links that seem to get sort of lost. Okay, thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. Uh, if you like what you heard here, you should uh, support us on Patreon. That would be really nice of you. Um, you can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, um, and I don't know. Basically, that's it. That's all the places you could really find us. Oh, and iTunes, too. You can also find us on iTunes. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, you can support us in all those ways. Uh, also, check out our Facebook page uh, and our Facebook group called uh, the, the called the Magnificast Basement. Um We've got a pretty good community of people going there that are posting lots of interesting links, so check those out and uh, become part of our community. All right, see you next time. I 
I don't wanna get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no damn between us and our Lord.